Abraham, I'll now turn to First John. First John chapter four. Chapter chapter four. I'll be reading verses one to six. First John. Just have now your full attention to the word of our God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. But as you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. For he who was in you is greater than he who was in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The word of the Lord. Thank you. May be seated. Let's pray together and bless the Lord blessing upon His word this time of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come again before you. Confess this is your word breathed out by you and given to us, your covenant people. And Lord God, we are often so hard of hearing. So we ask that your uh, gracious spirit would grant us grace this day, that you would give us ears and hearts that are ready and willing to believe. We pray, Lord God, that you would magnify your Son in our midst, that the good news of the gospel, as it is presented in him, would come to us anew and afresh and again and again, that we may grow to be more conformed to the image of that Savior, our Lord. Father, we pray that you would grant us hope, we would find that hope in life and believing. So we ask for grace for your people and grace for the one who speaks on your behalf. And know that your name might indeed be magnified in all the earth. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to be reading uh, for our text this morning. You would think it would be First John, but it's not. It's Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read you just the first two verses. Because of the, the, the overlapping nature of some of what John is doing what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And so let's hear it out from Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So for the reading of his word, grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord indeed endures forever. Well, as I said, I want to look at this text this morning uh, because of the way that it overlaps with 1 John and where we are and where 1 John is going um, in that letter that we've been looking at. Uh, 
and also because it tells something very important about life in this world. Uh, when we're younger, we don't really understand why our parents or our grandparents seem to be bothered at the world or at the culture. Uh, and easy way to think of it, and I pray you who are younger will grasp this. Uh, in one sense, it's true that when we get older, for most of us, like to varying degrees, uh, everything hurts and everything is different from what we've known all our lives since when we were younger. Uh, some are blessed with less physical pain than others, like I said, to varying degrees, but none of this escapes the reality of the changing world in which we live over time. And it usually takes the passage of years uh, for us to understand this. Um, sometimes the things that make us bother are the changes, like I said, in the culture around us or in politics or in the styles and decorum uh, that, that, that seem to uh, spiral down worse and worse, uh, the way that people act in the world, what is acceptable and accepted in the world. But sometimes the things that bother us and grieve us are spiritual things, right? or things that the unbelieving world portrays believers as being. The outside world, non-Christians in the world, have very distinct ideas about about what and who we are. Those ideas are very often caricatures and stereotypes of the truth. But sadly, at times, they are true. And we've all been, have you not, right, cut off in traffic by a rude driver, only to notice as they pass you uh, in a flash uh, the sticker of the fish on their bumper, right? the, the fish on the back of the car. Um, the world doesn't need any help or any more reason to embrace the stereotypes of hypocrisy or unloving judgmentalists. And isn't the relation between our behavior and our identity something that gets attacked by that culture and something that's really understood and misunderstood even by Christians, by outsiders and insiders? And as believers in Christ, we want to be sure, to be faithful and clear on what we believe, on why we believe it, and what effect those beliefs should have on our lives as individuals are living out that faith. In First John, we've seen, we've been reading about these tests for identifying the children of God. Uh, John says that we are to walk in the light, not in the darkness. He says we're to be characterized by practicing righteousness. Right? People have got to be characterized by these things. God's people must walk in the truth. And so we see these two, right? They always put together, living and believing. Living and believing. What is believed affects how we live, how we act in the world. And further than that, we can never settle for mere outward behavioral change, right? Outward change, right? The motive and reasons for that behavior is paramount. It's imperative. The message of Christianity isn't simply act different, right? To act better. And preaching, therefore, can never be simply act different. Uh, tragically, it's true that some do preach this. They preach moralism. They preach uh, legalistically. But the message of the gospel is not outside in. Right? It's inside out. It's inside out. And it makes all the difference in the world um, if you haven't thought about that. Right? Just how does what we believe affect how we behave? The relationship to behavior and belief. Right? The passage before us in Romans uh, and as John will unfold next week in chapter 4 of 1 John, it's pivotal in, get, pivotal in getting to this point, getting to the point, right? Romans 
12.1 and 2 uh, function as a hinge in a letter. A hinge in Paul's arguments. It's a transition, these two verses are. And you all are probably aware of the way that Paul structures most of his letters. Right? He normally structures them in this way. He first explains what the Lord has done for him, the glorious truths of what God has done for his people. He explains what the Lord has done. He says who they are right? by virtue of their what the Lord has done. This is who you are section. And then he goes on to what to do section. Right? The therefore part. Therefore, act in a different way. Therefore, based on what has been done, what the Lord has done to you and for you, behave in a way that comports with who you are. Your life and behavior should flow out of your identity in Christ. We are so wired to go straight to the do this section. And Paul doesn't do that. Very often we just want the list or the method or the formula to follow. We very much like to have laws to keep, lists to check off. The fact is that, that is not where life is. It's not where life is found. And in fact, that's where death is found and bondage. Bondage to the law only results in death. This is not the fault of the law, but it's a fault in our own makeup, in our estate. As fallen men and women in this world, our inherited corruption. So if you are prone to this do-ism, right? Or you think that you really are a law keeper, or if you feel the crushing weight of the reality of your own inability to measure up in your own failure, if this is you, Listen closely to God's word to you now. Listen and believe and be blessed and refreshed by it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 are a hinge. These verses are a hinge between the two sections of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, verses, rather, chapters 1 to 11, that Paul unfolds his glorious truths of the Christian faith and the working of God and for man. Talks about being justified by Jesus Christ, being sanctified by Christ. Talks about man's salvation, right? It's not by man's merit, but by God's mercy. And all while we were enemies. All this background leads us to chapter 12, right? And the passage summarizes both what Paul has said up to this point, and then what will follow for the remainder of the letter, right? It's retrospective and prospective. Paul tells us in these verses what? He says, because of the mercies of God, we are to give our whole being over to God and be transformed to know God's will more and more for his glory, for our good, as we live our lives wholly to his service according to that will that he's given us. Be a living sacrifice, right? That, that language, that idea will help us as we work through this text. Right? We look for the... Uh, the why of the living sacrifice, the what of the living sacrifice, and then the way of the living sacrifice. Right? But first, the why, right? the why of the living sacrifice. What does Paul say in verse 1 there? He says, therefore I urge, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. Right? And he says, therefore. Right? Whenever we see a therefore, it's a kind of signal or a cue of a transition in the discussion. Um, it's a conclusion indicator, a transition indicator in what he's been saying. And so remember that all that has led up to this point, right? all that he said in these 11 chapters, and then he says, therefore, by the mercy of God. Notice well what he is saying. And so, because of this, the mercies of God, right? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, uh, do this and live. Right? He doesn't say that. He says, you believe, you live because of Christ. 
Therefore, do this. Right? You see the difference? Yeah. It doesn't say do this and live. It says you live because of Jesus and what he's done. Therefore, do this. And that is altogether uh, significant and imperative. God doesn't inspire a message that says, do this, present your lives as a sacrifice to God, and then live. He doesn't say that. He says, because of all that God has done, because of his love and his mercy towards you, because of, of his giving you life, do this. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. The law comes to the Christian man, remember, brothers and sisters, through Calvary, right? not through Sinai, through Calvary, law of Christ. So Paul is saying, since you are justified, you are justified by Christ. Elected, grafted in, made alive, brought from death to life in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, then live like this. Whole soul, live entirely for him who saves you. And this is the basis for the why of the living sacrifice, the mercies of God for all that he's done. Remember, mercy defined as not getting what you deserve. Not getting what you deserve. Paul knew what mercy was, right? Paul knew what it was to be saved, what he was saved from, the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. God didn't say to Paul, okay, Paul, I did my part, now you do yours. Not what he said. The Lord didn't say to Paul, okay, Paul, I saved you, now you better prove that you're worth saving. You better behave. That's not what he said. And you need to know, as I need to know, this is not God's disposition towards us. This is not what he says to you. You are saved, brothers and sisters, from God's wrath, his just wrath. He saved you from this. He extended his mercy to you and not giving you what you deserve. And this is the glory and the sweetness of the gospel. Because none of us were worth saving in the first place. Yet he still planned from before time for the foundation of the world to save you. To save you, to save those who need the decree, to save instead his love upon out of his sheer good mercy. Uh, and so we must know his love for us, know his love for you, know his mercy towards you. It is you, dear Christian, to whom he gave life, that are able to begin to keep the law in which God delights. Before Christ got hold of you, you could not and you would not. It's only you who have been saved who can begin to actually keep that law. Right? So this is the why of the living sacrifice. Right? By the mercies of God. Now to the what of the sacrifice. To the what of the living sacrifice. What does this mean when he says, uh, the apostles call, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Right? Some have uh, flippantly said, the problem with the living sacrifice is that they keep crawling off the altar. Right? You know, in an attempt to be funny. That doesn't help much. It's pretty lame, but think about the text. What does he say? After 11 chapters, he says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Why does he say that? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Of course, for Paul, this is very familiar language. Not merely his familiarity with the Old Testament and the ritual practices and the sacrificial system, but this is what went on in his own days, what he did. It's a faithful Jew time. Surely there was an intimate, up close and personal experience 
burned into the minds of those in Paul's days. This idea of a sacrifice. I think of all the descriptions of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. If you've not read them uh, for a while, go back and look through what that was. These animal sacrifices right throughout the Old Testament, the system. And it can seem gruesome to us today. Right? Especially those of us raised in the city in the 21st century. Right? Most people in our culture, maybe more so here than on the coasts, uh, but unless you're from a farm or have uh, personal experience with animals, most of us haven't really been familiar with where our food comes from, right? Even. Most of us uh, think it comes from the store. We're fairly dis- disconnected from the death and the blood and the messiness of where our food comes from. We're a different culture. And so the reality of these bloody, messy sacrifices is hard to grasp for some of us. <clears throat> I remember my father was, uh, would tell us, he was from the city, grew up in the city, and he would uh, tell us the first time he ever saw like, a pig in real life. And uh, he was at a fair or something like that. And in his mind, a pig was, you know, like Porky Pig, and you could see the cartoons. Uh, but he saw this monster boar of a pig, and he was horrified. He couldn't believe this animal was actually real, right? And that's how many of us are, uh, our familiarity with animals and with things like this. Right? We're not intimately familiar with animal sacrifices, the burning of the blood of the sacrifices. Right? Think of the, the, the smell uh, of all that blood, the smell, the pungency of that. You know, anyone who's experienced being around a lot of blood will tell you the distinct odor of blood. This is such the case that those in the medical profession or especially combat veterans uh, speak of this inability to get that smell out of their nostrils and out of their brain and out of this, uh, get this, the stain of blood off their hands. I think of smoke, right? Smoke, the pungency of smoke and the power of smoke. I think uh, smoke from a campfire, right? can be distinctive. It can be unbearable if the wind changes and you're in a direct line of all that smoke. It's overwhelming. Now think of burning not wood in that campfire, but burning the blood, right? the sounds and the smells of what that would be. This just gets the idea of the whole reality of a sacrifice. And that those who first heard this message would have had familiarity with the sacrifice as well, you have to remember. They would have known what Paul is talking about. Even the pagan Gentiles, right? They're familiar with, uh, in some sense, with the sacrifice. They're familiar with the idea of bringing an animal that was to be identified as their own bringing it to an altar and watching it as the animal is killed in some ritual manner. And then seeing the animal lit on fire. And as the flame goes up, up into the sky. This is not a, a striking piece of imagery to us because we're all far removed from this. As it would have been to them, like this living sacrifice. But it's what Paul uses, right? This imagery that he uses, this language of sacrifice. And it should still arrest our attention as we hear what he's talking about. And think about that. And what is the nature of the sacrifice? What's the nature of the sacrifice he's talking about? It's total, right? It's whole, total. Because of what God did, if you were his, his claim on you is absolute. Absolute. Not just outward stuff, but that we're completely owned by God himself. Not just part of us, not just a portion of our lives, Right? The life you live, Scripture tells what? It's not your own. It's not your own. You were bought with Christ. You're hidden. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life. It's His life, right? Your life is His life. And that is 
Uh, that's the commitment, right? All of you, entirely, absolute. He owns us, right? He is our creator and our redeemer. All belongs to him. We belong to him. Not just a portion of us, not just some kind of belief. Everything. He is our life and we belong to him. Right? We are a living sacrifice of God. And our Christian life is one of submission to our Lord who was, who indeed died for us and was raised for us. Right? Not in parts or pieces, but wholly in the totality of who we are. And then what about the, the adjectives, right? Living, holy, acceptable that he uses here. This should draw our minds again to the sacrificial system of the Mosaic economy, right? The time, uh, the theocracy, and the Mosaic system it required what offerings that were characterized how? Without blemish, right? Without blemish, they were set apart. They were wholly set apart for the Lord, given entirely for the Lord. And Paul uses these terms uh, to describe us as living sacrifices. Again, wholly acceptable. We look at these chapters that, that precede chapter 12 here. Well, see, chapter 6 speaks of newness of life. Right? Not death and destruction, but walking in newness of life. Chapter 4, that chapter 5 speaks of holiness, being set apart, being acceptable without blemish. God poured out through the Holy Spirit. has been given to us, right? That love has been poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. He's made us acceptable by God. As Paul is saying, be who you are. Live to God. The reality of who you are. And then why does Paul say our bodies? Offer your bodies. Yes, this has to do with our whole self. Right? Our whole self. But also we need to be careful not to say that the body, the flesh, is evil. Right? We talk about this a lot. It's not evil. God doesn't make bad stuff. Right? We're not dualists. We don't think that this, this spiritual, the non-physical is good and the physical is evil. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That's not the worldview of the Bible. Our bodies are made the way they are so we can show that it's not merely speech that we're about living in our bodies. It's truth and consistency, right? It's the body that shows our action, our devotion to God. And so what we think, what we believe in heart and mind affects how we act in the world with our bodies. Again, I remember you know, growing up in the 80s, it was a time I was obsessed with fitness and health, right? Those of you who lived through this, remember the late warmers and all the rest, right? I think uh, the CrossFit craze or the Spartan races more recently. Our culture indeed is obsessed with physical fitness, with health and beauty and looks physically, of the body, but not so much the mind and soul. Right? Mechanistic thinking, thinking that, 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 that human beings are just like machines. Right? This is the rules today. We must resist that thinking. We can easily separate inappropriately these two, right? body and soul. We can't allow ourselves to do this. We are told what? To love the Lord your God. How so? With what? With our heart, soul, Mind and strength, right? So the question is, are we wholly given over, body, soul, mind, and strength to Christ? We're given over for his glory. The totality of who we are. Right? Or is he merely one more thing added to our life? Or is he all of life? Is he all of your life? The reality of Christ as your life, does that affect every aspect of your life? If that's the question. 
So the way is the works of God, and the what is the whole soul fully given over life to Jesus. He's the one that watches the life you live is no longer your own. We're bought the price, and that price was his own blood. And now the way of the living sacrifice. The way of the living sacrifice. What does that look like? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By not conforming, but being transformed. There's still good words that are used here. Well, it gives the negative, then it gives the positive. The idea of not conforming to this world has a long track record of abuse, misunderstanding, and all the bad practices that follow from it. Not conforming to this world. The attempts to escape or resist this world, right? the world, right? think of like the, the monastic desire to escape and isolate from the world, that's one of the things that monasteries are for, to flee from the world. Think of that. Think of the severe denials of the flesh, even self-inflicted pain that we read about historically, uh, that indeed things are still going on, that is depriving the body of food uh, or exposure to the elements. Right? It's said that some would wear shirts with bits of glass or metal in them to cause pain, to remind them the pain that they were set free from. We you think of the ritual observance for celibacy vows, for vows of poverty. Again, from this dualistic line that the physical is bad and needs to be crushed. That all misses the point because the fact is, the sin and evil is not just out there in the world, but it's in here in our hearts, right? It's in here in our hearts. So wherever we try to escape, and wherever we try to escape to, we will pollute because of our own sin that we bring in with us. And then notice too, again, our Bible reads what it says, do not be conformed to this world. Let me conform to this world. A better translation of that would be, do not be conformed to this age, at this age. Not so much the world physically as the globe, but this age. This age is distinct from what? This age, from the age to come. Right? And indeed, Paul throughout his letters, inspired by the Spirit, speaks of two ages. He said, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The age to come is that age that what? It's that age that you have a down payment on. Age to come, Holy Spirit. Also, therefore, live according to that age where your life is truly is. Been united to Christ. You've been raised with Him. And then, how? What does He say? How? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is the character? of this age. This age is characterized by what? By a debased mind, by a darkened, callous mind, by a blinded, degraded mind. Paul certainly talks about this in chapter one of Romans, in chapter eight as well, specifically. Paul says you need to be transformed. Again, notice he doesn't say be conformed. Right. He says, don't be, uh, be conformed to this, but be conformed to that. Somebody says, he says transformed. Right? Transformed is different than conformed. It's not just a synonymous word used for various uh, literary style. Right? The word transformed is different than conformed. Transformed is stronger. Right? And you can think of like this. The idea of being conformed uh, is it's the idea of changing, for instance, a flower garden into a vegetable garden. Right? It's still a garden. Being transformed, rather, 
It's changing a garden into a city or something other than it was before, transforming to something altogether new. Chapters 1 to 11 are critical to renewing your minds. They're critical for that. Yeah. Renewing your mind to be taught, to teach, to be trained, learn doctrine. Through the means of grace, all these are ways of transforming you, being exposed to, availing yourself through the changing power, through the spirit of the Lord, through the means of grace. And this transformation leads to discernment of the will of God, to know the will of God. And as he grows you and shapes you and transforms you, as you are transformed, you will grow in your discernment. In your intimacy with the Lord, you will grow. And in knowing what his will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You should have no confusion on what is what that is, right? What is uh, that, what is that should characterize our, characterize our lives? Or how we should live? What the lives of God's rescued, redeemed, and saved people should look like? And so, verses twelve, uh, chapter twelve, verses one and two. This hinge is nothing less than a call to live in this world, but have minds that are in heaven. By the heavenly mind where your true life is, where your home is. <coughs> you probably all heard the saying, I heard the quote in this week, uh, actually a couple of times. Right? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Right? Have you heard the phrase? It's a lie, brothers and sisters, it's a lie. We are told to be heavenly minded because unless we are heavenly minded, we will be no earthly good. Many in the church are earthly focused. But they've lost sight of, been distracted by, distracted from this reality, the reality of heaven, as our true homeland, as our citizenship is. And what follows from verse 3 onward in chapter 12 here is a description of the heavenly minded person. The one who's given himself over to Christ, offered himself as a living sacrifice, his whole person, as his spiritual worship. So, by the mercies of God, because of all that he has done, May we, brothers and sisters, delight and rejoice in offering ourselves wholly again and again and again as our spiritual worship to Him in our hearts, in our actions, our behavior flowing from belief in the truth that you are made new, you're part of the new creation, being that spiritual worship. God's promise to you as you do, brothers and sisters, is that throughout your life, though you fail, and you fall, and you are imperfect, you are broken, nevertheless, the promise is what? That your dear Heavenly Father continues to transform you, to transform you through His means, making you fit for your eternal home in glory, transforming you to the age, the image, rather, for that age, in the image of His blessed Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you once more by the power of your Spirit. We give us strength to live out the message that we've heard, this truth of our being transformed and our ability to test the spirits, to discern what is true and what is error, what is a place and what is a lie. Lord, our desire to embrace these truths and taste the sweetness of the gospel. Father, to find our life. In Jesus, our Savior, may we indeed see who we really are and rejoice. Seeing that it is true, which is going to make us, bring us honor and glory in your name and make us new creations that we are. We praise the Lord.
for these things. Lord, we ask you to use this church, Providence Presbyterian Church, for the furtherance of the gospel in this area, for the building up of your people, for bringing others from death to life, for your glory and by the work of the gospel, as your spirit seems fit to lead. Lord, we ask to prosper our labors to that end. We pray, Lord, give us boldness in the conversations that we have with others. We ask to bring opportunities in those discussions, for those discussions, sharing the gospels, for being the truth in a world that is dead and dying and so need of that truth. And Lord, even in simply inviting others to come to worship, be with us, Lord, we pray, and they come and have a confrontation with Christ in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you be with us, uh, Lord, and you would continue to grow us in depth and in number. Work in this area, we pray. Glorify yourself in a small outpost of your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Pray for those who suffer in our midst, Lord, that are in need. Lord, we pray that uh, you would encourage them and use us as your body on earth in that love and encouragement. Lord, we pray that they would know that you are the God of the resurrection of the dead. Lord, that what awaits them belongs to Christ, is far outweighed, surpasses our human, all human understanding. We pray, grant them your comfort, your spirit, and the peace that is beyond all human understanding. Lord, we do pray with, uh, we pray for our unbelieving loved ones, all of us have those who do not know you, Lord, uh, who reject you. Father, we pray that you would, that your will grant them faith in the new hearts, in the home and glory, that they would indeed be changed, that their new hearts would beat for you, and they would love Christ for all of their lives. We trust you, Lord, in your providence, in the world, in all these things. We praise you, Lord, for the lives you've given us. We pray, be with us, even for all of us. We must have hearts that are full of your love, Lord, that love would overwhelm all the distractions and irritants and the pains that we go through. Lord, we pray that our hearts would show, that it's shown kindness that we show us to others and love each other in such a way that the outsiders would see and wonder and be awestruck by that love. Use us in our lives, we pray, Lord, to witness your glory. We pray that you have fed us again this morning as we've heard your word. We pray, Lord, may we see that this is our life and our sustenance in the midst of plenty and in the midst even of famine. To that end, we come to you and we ask all these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen.